You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Morning, guys. So yeah, I'm Adam, one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm going to continue our sermon series uh, in this uh, Advent topic. And some of you right off the bat are like, Adam two Sundays after Christmas. Uh, Why are we still in Advent? And I would say two things to you. The first is that Pastor Michael has sole responsibility over the preaching calendar. (laughs) Uh, So uh, take it up with him. And number two is uh, that we're not done. Uh, We're not done Adventing. And uh, yeah, I turned that into a verb this morning. Uh, But we're not. And I was talking to the Lord uh, as I prepared this morning's message. Uh, You can find your way to Matthew chapter 2. Lord, what do you have for, for, for your church this morning? You've, you've given me the opportunity to stand in front of your people on the first Sunday of 2022 and conclude this Advent sermon series and, and invite your people to carry what you've been saying to us in this Advent sermon series into this new year. What do you have for us? And uh, really, I've heard one loud overarching thing that I want to invite you guys into this morning in our time together which is that we're not done looking at the coming of Christ. You know, Advent is a theological word. Uh, When it's used theologically, it means coming. It's in reference to the coming of Christ. And most often we use it in reference to the first coming of Christ, this most amazing event in human history. And it is the most amazing event in human history, the first coming of Christ, that God, the creator of the universe, took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And Pastor Michael has, I mean, you can raise your hand if you have been just moved and encouraged uh, over this Advent series through, you know, through these passages. It's been amazing, right? As we look at the first coming. I raised my hand, Michael. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I love you. (laughs) But it's been amazing. We look at this first coming, and with narrowing focus, Pastor Michael has led us through this love beyond belief, these different aspects of the love of God, that we have this love that comes out of brokenness as he walked us through the lineage of the Christ and showed that he came from among us, that he came from a lineage that looks a lot like us, that he identified with us. And then he talked about in week two this love that perseveres, that it was set in motion from before the foundation of the earth and that despite all the efforts of Satan and man to stop and thwart this plan of love, that it has persevered and been, has been victorious. And then he preached this message on a love that descends, that God steps out of the heavenly and high places and onto bloody soil and walks among us, Emmanuel, God with us. And then last week, this beautiful sermon, this, this God that has a love that invites, that opens its arms, that welcomes in, that says, come, drink, taste, see, eat, and welcome sinners, broken people like you and I. It's amazing as with narrowing focus, we have looked at this first coming. And it is, I want to repeat it, and you can write it down, the most amazing moment, the most amazing sequence of events, the first coming in human history. But we are living sandwiched between the most amazing events in human history and the most amazing events of human destiny, a second coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is something that I want to kind of focus on this morning as we wrap up this story. We're going to be looking at the wise men in in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 on down through whenever I stop. And 
and well, we're going we're gonna to see in this not just a God who came, but a God who is coming. And I, I've been looking around this, you know, over this last week as we're here on January 2nd, 3rd in 2022, and there's these weeks for some of you, months for me, because uh, I put up my tree in like October, where we just spend our, our, our time in, anticip- in anticipation, this anxious and excited anticipation as we look at the past, as we look at what really happened, as we look at the true story that God became one of us, that he lived the perfect life that we were meant to live, that he died the death that we deserve to die, that he rose victorious over that sin and death, that he ascended before the, into the right hand of the Father, that he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the church to achieve his purposes in creation until his return. And we could look at that every minute and just be filled with joy. And so there's this amazing season all around the country, all around your neighborhood and in the church where you just see joy and hope swelling as we look at past events, and that's how it ought to be. And yet then we turn the corner, December 26th, December 27th, December 28th, and we take down the tree and we take down the lights and we box up the nativity set, and you almost just see this lull, this dip in spiritual vitality, in joy, we're almost like we come back down to earth as if that was a dream, and now we're back in reality. And there's this tiptoeing into 2022, like we're playing Don't Wake Daddy. I don't know if I just date myself. (laughs) And it's because, I talked to the Lord, I said, what do you have for us as we go into 22? He says, don't stop adventing you're still looking to a coming. We are between two comings, the first coming of Christ when he comes as the suffering Messiah to take care of the issue of the penalty of sin for humankind, but we are still living under the consequences of sin, the effects of sin, and the presence of sin, and once and for all at his return, he will deal with the very presence of sin. And so we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. And I want us to see it in a number of different ways, okay? So we talked about this love that comes out of brokenness, this love that perseveres, this love that descends, this love that invites. And this morning, we're going to talk about a love that reigns. I called Pastor Michael last night. I kind of talked to him about what the Lord was saying to me. I'm like, hey, how do you say this in a love that blank? You know, how do I fit this in? What am I saying? He says, you know, it sounds like you're talking about a love that reigns. I'm like, I am talking about a love that reigns. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, this love that reigns, because as we start to tiptoe into 2022 and we see God's faithfulness over the past, it was just such an amazing sovereign thing that the Lord did to give us the song set that he gave us this morning. What we tend to do is we say, yes, God, you've been faithful over the past, but I don't believe that you're going to be faithful again. I don't believe that you're continuing the trajectory of this story. I don't believe that I look to my destiny and I look to the future that this story is still on the right trajectory, that, that the victory was 2,000 years ago, but now we're living in some broken, messy aftermath. And I want to declare for you guys this morning that we worship a God whose love reigns and continues to reign, and it reigns over the things that we don't believe that it reigns over. And specifically, I want to name five things, and then you could follow me through them. We worship a God whose love reigns over history. You can write that down. We worship a God whose love reigns over the pages of history. And I mean every page of history, every moment of history, including the strife and sin and suffering of the world. We worship a God who reigns over nature. Over nature. We worship a God whose love reigns over the peoples and nations of the earth, 
we worship a God who, whose love reigns over the governors and authorities of the earth. And lastly, we worship a God who reigns over the future of the earth, okay? These five things. The reason why I picked these five things is because these are five things that, generally speaking, uh, like if we just don't dwell on it too much, our impulse, as I walk and know you guys and as I know my own heart, our impulse over those five areas is to believe that they are self-governing, that they're self-governing, that in some way these five things kind of control themselves, that they are not under any authority, that we at best if we band together and wrestle for some power or influence or money or esteem, in some ways we can maybe influence these events, but that they're not really ultimately under anybody's control, that they are self-governing, that history and the future and nature and the nations and, the pe- and people are all self-governing and ultimately are uncontrolled. But the love of God claims authority over these five things, ultimate and total authority over these five things. So let's see how we get there. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go line by line. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly, with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's get through it. So, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So right off, right off the bat, we are introduced to some characters in this story, right? We see Jesus, who has been born. We see Herod the king. He was installed by the Romans. And we see wise men from the east coming to Jerusalem. And I think we probably right away want to focus on the wise men because it's not immediately clear who are the wise men, but we have a ton of context for who the wise men were. The word here is magi, and they're referenced several times in the Bible so that we have kind of this clarity on who they are, what their role was, where maybe they're coming from, okay? But Matthew speaks very briefly on it. He just calls them wise men from the east. We've got these magi from the east. I don't want us to think like magicians, like card tricks, 
We're talking magi, the wise men of the ancient times. These were men who were stargazers, who watched celestial events and tried to interpret the future. These were people who were steeped in the stories and the, and, and the fables of the region and who, and who said about themselves that they had wisdom to see future events or to understand the purposes behind the things that, that were happening. And so this was a position in the ancient world of great esteem, where to be called a magi would be to have a place in a king's court, where when I have a dream that I don't understand, I call on the magi to come and interpret my dreams for me or tell me what this might mean. That when I have uncertainty about the future, I call on the magi to try to predict the future. And most of the time when we see this type of activity in the Bible, it's sinful activity, but it was common activity. And having, the, and having this status as a magi is to be a person of high esteem in the culture. And so I don't want you guys to picture kind of these like wayfaring stargazers. These were people who would have been well-supplied, well-regarded uh, in, in, their, in their nations, and they would have traveled not just kind of with like pocket change, but they would have traveled with caravans and gifts to give. They were, they were in many ways like diplomats. So when they entered, you would know where these guys came from and what their position was. And so they make their way into Jerusalem and a buzz starts to happen here. And the people all start talking because uh, on their arrival. And so we know right away that they did have influence, that these weren't just nobodies because it got to Herod's ear. The fact that Herod noticed them at all tells us everything we need to know about, the, about their significance, okay? That they were there in the capital city of Jerusalem and got Herod's ear shows the stir that it made that they arrived, okay? So I want us to picture men of influence, okay? And we have to ask the question, or we miss the beauty of the whole passage, how the heck did they know when they saw this celestial event to head to Jerusalem? How did they know that they saw the star of the king of the Jews, this is where I want to start this morning, that we have a God whose love reigns over the pages of history. Somehow, God had written a story in the years subsequent to the celestial event that these men from the East, and we don't know where, but you can look at the pages of church history and church tradition and ascertain a lot of information, but Matthew doesn't say it, so I won't preach it as law, but I'll tell you that it's fairly knowable, or, 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 or we can we can with some confidence guess that these were men who hailed from several different countries in the East, that this was a common practice in the nations of the East, that they were in something of a fraternity of astronomers who would share their observations with one another, and that they would have worked together to travel together into Jerusalem at, the, at this celestial event, this star rising in the sky. But how did they know what they, what they were seeing when they saw it is the question. And this is what we need to see. In the book of Numbers, in chapter 22 specifically, while the people of God are in exile and they are growing in number rapidly and they are overflowing in population, this man Balak starts to panic at their great number and he calls for a magi from the eastern mountains to come and he's going to pay him to speak a curse over the people of God. And when Balaam comes, you guys will know this story, God speaks to him through his donkey and says to him, why are you going to curse my people? Instead, don't curse my people, but bless my people. And he puts a prophecy on Balaam's mouth, this, this magi from the east, and says, speak over them that a star will fall, a star will descend, and a scepter will arise from among the people. A scepter is a ruler. So in Numbers 22, this magi from the east who is called for a wage to curse the people instead is given a blessing from God that one day a star will fall over my people and a scepter will arise. 
So how did the Magi from the east know that when this star fell, that this was a symbol that, God, that, that God's son had arise, that, that, that the ruler of God had come for the Jews? Well, because he told a Magi from the east that that's what was going to happen. That's the first thing. And if they weren't sure about it, then later on, he would exile his people in Babylon in the east, where for 60 years they would tell the stories of God as they were handed down to them among the peoples of the east, and it would spread throughout the Babylonian empire so that their, their captors would come to know the stories and the prophecies of God. So you say, how do these non-Jews from the east know anything about it? Because God authored the pages of history leading up to the celestial event to ensure that on that day, the, nation, the nations all around the area would know what was going on. And this should be a huge encouragement to us because the events that transpired to make sure that one day when the Son of God appeared, that the nations would know and that the nations would come came to pass through persecution, through suffering, through discipline, through hardship, through exile, through captivity. It was through the wandering in the wilderness, it was through captivity in the eastern nations that the prophecies of God spread to the peoples of the world so that on the day that the star descended, it was the magi in the east that knew what it meant first. And here they are. And so these guys travel into Jerusalem. It just makes sense because Jerusalem is the capital city of the people. They're asking around, and no one knows what they're talking about. And this should hit us, guys. The foreigners who merely heard the stories from the people of God saw the event and knew what it meant. And when they went to the capital city of Jerusalem, the people were like, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. And so you've got these Gentiles and these Jews on the scene at this point in the story, and it's the Gentiles who know what they're talking about, not the Jews. And so Herod hears the buzz, and he calls the chief priests and the scribes. These are the next characters on the scene. So the chief priests were put in place by God to kind of oversee the worship of the people, and the chief scribes were put in place to oversee the laws of God. And so these people who had responsibility over worship and the law come before Herod, the secular king, and he asked them, what are they talking about? Where is the king of the Jews? And they quote poorly Micah chapter 5. And I point out that they quote it poorly because I want to remind you that these are the guys who are responsible for knowing the dotted I's and the cross T's of the words of God. And they say, oh no, as it is written. And then they basically botch Micah chapter, two, chapter 5 to Herod. But they get it, most of it right, enough of it right, that he was to be born in Bethlehem. And they say, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here at this point in the story, Herod hears the buzz. He calls in the chief priests and the scribes. What's the, what are these guys talking about? Where's the Messiah born? Where's the king of the so-called king of the Jews born? We have to know that Herod had been in power for 40 years. He killed his own wives. He killed his own children. He killed anybody who had raised up against him. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant, and he hears that there's a guy being called king of the Jews who's been born, and he wants to seek him out. So he calls who to get this information? the chief priests and the scribes. And what do they do? They roll over. First thing, they just give him up. Oh yeah, the prophecy said he'd be born over there. They immediately give him up. And do they bother to go to see for themselves? No, they don't. 
No, they don't. They just hand the information over to Herod as if it's just a piece of fact, not the living, risen Christ, the, the, the Savior of the world, the King of the Jews. They say, oh, no, the book says it'd be over here. They're in the wrong spot, as if they're handing out directions alone. And then Herod, who can't be bothered to check that out for himself either, summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And if we can read that and, like, and just not pause and be like captured with awe, we've just become numb to the mighty power of God. We are talking about a God who literally picked a star out of the sky and moved it for the purpose of the Magi to follow it and then it's like stopped it over the place where Jesus was. And so when we say that nature is self-governing, that we have no control, that, we, that it's not controlled by anything, that it's, just, it's, it's this unwieldy thing that does whatever it wants, we're getting it wrong. The Lord declares that it is his love that reigns over even nature. He bends it to his will for the purpose of bringing the people to the foot of Christ. So here we see God literally bending space to lead these foreigners to the place where Jesus was. And only they could be bothered to go. And when they get there, it says that when they see the star move, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And we should see tons of parallels when the Lord does this. Like if you could picture just like the first time when the Magi are called on to curse the people, but instead speak this prophetic blessing over the people. We should see this, this symbolism that when this star moves, it's much like the pillar of the cloud and fire from Exodus that moved for the people, that the Lord is bending nature to communicate with and speak to the people to lead them into his presence. That this is something that only God does, but it seems like it's something that God loves to do. He did it then and he's doing it now. And he'll do it again. So his love reigns over the pages of history. His love reigns over the governments and the rulers, over the chief priests and the scribes, over Herod himself, over these men of esteem from the east. He rules over all of that. He puts them in place to set up this scene where you've got the Roman rulers, you've got the religious rulers, you've got the eastern rulers, and you've got baby Jesus all converging in one space and time, and he leads them into each other's path by moving a star in the sky, declaring himself as high ruler over them all, as ruler of the very heavens. And they all converge in this moment of a moment of great rejoicing with exceeding great joy. Not when they saw Jesus, before they ever got there. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So you're seeing something change here. You know, but, but this is a little bit of a sub-point, guys, but when we talk about breaking up the Advents into the first Advent and the second Advent, I think it's important that we acknowledge that something really changes. At all points before the first Advent, we were compatible with the place where we lived. 
In the Garden of Eden, when we were the perfect creation, before sin had entered creation, we were fit for the place that we dwelled, to dwell with God in perfection as perfect created beings. And when we sin, and chaos and rebellion and sin and death spiraled everything, and God threw and cursed the very ground so that once again we matched creation. As sinful, fallen, dead and dying human beings, we fit right in in a sinful, dying, cursed ground. This creation was fit for us. We were right at home here. In fact, it wasn't the problem we were. It matched us. We didn't match it. But then the first coming. Then Jesus comes, and by his blood, he covers and ransoms his church such that we are made a new creation. And suddenly we are a new creation awaiting new creation. For the first time in human history, we are incompatible with the world in which we live. We now, after the first coming, are living in tension with the world in which we live. New creation awaiting the new creation. So now something's happened. And so when you talk about that lull or that that spiritual dip that you observe after we get our eyes off the first coming and look back out to reality, that dip that you feel, I don't want you to feel shame about it. I don't want you to feel guilt about it. I want you to acknowledge it as real and fitting. It's real and fitting because for the first time, because of the first coming, you look around you and you see that things are not as they are and you don't find deep and lasting comfort in your soul. It's because you know something to be true, that things no longer fit. Things no longer fit. And at the second coming, when Christ removes the presence of sin from creation, what he is doing is he is making this place match you, just like he did the first time. We are no longer fit for a sinful, broken, fallen, cursed world because we are now the holy ones made spotless and perfect in the sight of God. And so we experience that tension. So when you look out at 2022 and you feel tenuous, what's happening is that we've gotten our eyes off of the second coming. That just like Jesus came the first time and declared that he reigns over the pages of history, that our God will reign by his love over the pages of destiny, of the future. That he's not done. That this tension that we're feeling makes sense in light of where we are in the story. We've had the privilege of being born between the greatest event in human history and the greatest event of the human future. And we've been told what they are. We've been told what's coming. And so they saw the star move And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. God was up to something. And so they followed him. And it came to rest on the place where Jesus lied. See, at this point in the story, there's a little bit of overlap. There's a lot of overlap, I would say, with where we're at in our story. Christ had come. Herod wanted to kill him. The people of God were apathetic towards his arrival at best or didn't believe that it was even real because they couldn't be bothered to go. But those who saw, who saw God moving in the direction he'd always been moving and who followed him to that place, they fell on their faces. Let's just read it. When they arrived at the house, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. I mean, they're the only characters in the story so far who have seen Jesus in his home 
and have worshipped him. The very first people, the shepherds were the first to see him in the manger, but the first people to be shown by God, he's here. This is the king. They show, they're, they're from a foreign land, not from the people of God. They're from a foreign land. And they're led directly by God, moving a star in the sky to the place where he lay. And what happens? They fall and they worship him. While Herod plots to kill him, while the religious leaders hang back in Jerusalem, doubting, cynical, quick to roll over on their Messiah, what was the difference? Why are only these people, we don't know specifically how many, but why are these people the ones falling on their faces and worshiping him? Because they'd seen him. That's what happens when you see him. And you've seen him. We've seen him. Not just that, we're indwelled by his spirit. So we are able to worship with exceeding great joy. Exceeding great joy. But if we get the sense that something's missing, it's because it is. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not everybody agrees, all the, not all the scholars agree on whether or not these gifts have symbolic meaning, if these are just traditional gifts that you would give, offer to a, to a king. But I just can't read my Bible and remove symbolism from anything because like God just seems like he's always telling us something, you know? When they offer him gifts of gold, that was certainly customary to give to a king. What these foreigners were saying is they said, you are who you said you were going to be. You are the scepter who has arisen. And I want to read you guys a, a prophecy that they may have known from the Babylonian exile. You know, we had asked the question, how did these guys know where they were going? This is from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Listen to this prophecy. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together and they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and they will bring good news, the praises of the Lord. If they didn't know they were fulfilling this, they did anyway, didn't they? The Lord was doing something and so here they come with their gold and their frankincense and they fall before him with great joy. The nations have come to the foot of Jesus. The nations came to the foot of Jesus before he took one step towards them. Because for generations, the pages of history, for thousands of years, this same baby Jesus reigned from the heavens, authoring a story that would culminate at this time in history in order that all would come to him. So here in this moment, it was not the Jew 
It was not Herod. It was these foreigners from the east who first fell and fulfilled this prophecy that bringing gifts of frankincense and myrrh, that they would come with great gladness and the nations would come before him as this light came upon the people. This is the fulfillment of prophecy, of multiple generations of prophecy that was, came to, that was, that was brought to come to pass through hardship and persecution. And so as we step into 2022 and we question whether or not this God who has reigned by his love over our history and over nature itself and over the people, both the Jew and the Gentile, the foreigner and the local, and as he has reigned over the governments and the authorities to make them all bend to serve his purposes in creation, that every knee would bow at the foot of Jesus. And we ask the question, well, God, what about the future? The future, too, because every page of history was at one point the future. As we look back at the faithfulness of God to write this story with an arc that always culminated on the sun, we can trust that he will continue to do the same. And he's coming back. And how do we know he's coming back? Because he said he's coming back. And how do we know he'll do what he says? Because he said he was coming the first time, and he did. That's it. He's coming back. But when he comes back, He's not coming as the suffering Messiah. He's coming as a conquering king to reign from the ends of, to the ends of the earth. So the question is, what's our charge this morning? What is it that the Lord wants us to carry into 2022? What does he have for us as we look back at this first coming and are swelled with gratitude that he entered into our story and achieved what he achieved? What do we do, what do, we do with that now? We use it to compel it to confidence, to look to his promises of the second coming and say, Lord, I believe you. You really are coming back to reign over all the peoples of the earth. You will draw them from every corner of the earth. So what's your job? To believe it, to live it, to carry it out. When I think about the new year for Mercy's Door, I want you to know that this is the stuff that's keeping me up at night in a good way. The stuff that's keeping my heart stirred is that the Holy Spirit has filled this room and he intends for us not just to be a people who look backward and delight in what the Lord has done, but who look forward with great anticipation to participate in what we know he will do. And as we grow in confidence, as we look at the past, faith, past faithfulness of the Lord and believe that he will do a new thing and that he will achieve his purposes in creation, that he will return and declare victory over all things, that he will establish his kingdom here and he will make every knee to bow and every tongue to confess from every corner of the earth, then we can say, Lord, let me participate. I just want to be a part of that. On my neighborhood, with my neighbor, with the person sitting next to you in gospel community at work and to the ends of the earth that the Holy Spirit is in us bringing the same story to pass. And so this morning, if you would pray with me, Lord, do that for me. Don't, don't call me into doing, into activity that's not a response to your past faithfulness. Let me see this and believe it, Lord. We can't create that for ourselves. But he can do it. So let's do that together now.